Welcome to Everything Belongs, a podcast for those living, creating, leading, and thriving while in the deep end of life. I'm your host, Madison Morgan, leadership coach, creative consultant, and speaker. I coach soulful visionaries and go-getting mavericks who desire to create art of their lives and take their work both deeper and higher. In this show, I'll be bringing you an overflow of conversations with my favorite thought leaders, teachers, healers, and creatives who inspire me to live more fully in my own power, worth, and wholeness, along with offering some episodes where I share my own practical insights, behind-the-scenes peeks into my process, and tools I use on my own journey. There will not be much we shy away from here because at this table, everything belongs. Therefore, you can expect me to ask the uncomfortable, juicy questions. You can expect that you'll hear people you disagree with on the podcast and maybe even ideas you've never previously considered. I trust you with your own discernment as we take this deep dive. You can expect to laugh, cry, learn, and be challenged by the guests as they share their diverse experiences and views of the world. It's my hope through learning to see that all of it belongs, that you will develop a more sovereign way of holding yourself so you can playfully go after the life, relationships, and career you are made for, to let all parts of yourself have a seat at the table, to lead and create from your deepest truth and become your own source of validation, all because you finally know you're worthy of it. All that's required to get started, that you show up curious and willing. Let's dive in. Hey everybody, and welcome to Everything Belongs. I am super thrilled because today I'm bringing you one of my mentors from my in-person life. I share a lot of people with you on this podcast who I've connected with on the internet, but Holly Kreps is someone that I know from real life, if you will, or in the flesh world. It's weird how you have to differentiate all of that, isn't it? Um, Holly is someone who is so dear to me, and I want to take a full moment to introduce her in just a moment. But before I introduce her to you, I want to let you know about the upcoming Awaken to Freedom training. The Awaken to Freedom training is a workshop that I run once or twice a year and have run for the past couple years. And there have been a couple thousand people, predominantly women and femmes, who've gone through this workshop. And it is all about really discovering our worth, our self-worth. And if you are curious or have been curious about connecting with me off of social media and in a live setting and hearing a little bit more about my work and actually diving into some live coaching, I would love for you to join me. So it's next Wednesday, if you're listening to this in real time on at July on July 27th. It's a 90-minute workshop, and we are gathering at 12 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, and 9 a.m. Pacific time. And my hope for the Awaken to Freedom workshop is essentially that you would learn to live your liberation. What I mean by that is that really we are, a lot of us are doing the work and the, I'm putting in air quotes, we don't often even know what doing the work means anymore. That term has become quite convoluted. And so I'm going to be distilling the three common mistakes I see people make whenever they are doing the work that are actually rooted in old programming. Because if the whole point of this is liberation, we want to be undoing the programming, not be doing the work from the programming. 
if that makes sense. So you'll find out more about that at the live training. Secondly, I'm going to share with you the five pillars of freedom to live your liberation now and remember your power in every moment. And these five pillars are amongst the 12 pillars I teach in my program, Awaken Her Soul. So we're going to be diving into some live teaching and some live training. And I'm going to share with you the single most essential piece of, again, air quotes, doing the work that changed my life forever. And I like to consider my work self-help for those who are sick of self-help. It's very anti-self-help and self-coaching oriented. So if life is feeling like it's gotten a little bit too small for you and you have, you know, out, you're outgrowing your current identity, you're outgrowing your current life old stories, then this is my invitation to you to join me in the upcoming workshop. I've said this before, and I will say it again, that I really believe that there is no opportunity so ripe for our inner liberation than when we realize that we're outgrowing those old stories, old paradigms, and old behaviors and patterns that we're operating from. A lot of the times, it's just a shift in perception and realizing that it's our programming that's too small for us that there's nothing wrong with us. It's the, the way that we're living in alignment with something that we no longer are. So if you're ready to untether from old programming, strip back some outdated paradigms, let go of old identities, and choose a story more aligned with your soul and your spirit, one of hope and freedom and truth, and you want to actually learn how to practice living it, I really encourage you to come to the live training. Again, it's the Awaken to Freedom training. And if you're curious about joining, you can go to awakenhersoul.com to just enter in your email and you'll get the Zoom link and the calendar invite. We're meeting again on July 27th, which is next Wednesday for 90 minutes at 11 a.m. Central Time. So for those of you who are really curious about gathering live and getting some free training from me, but you can't make it because of work schedules or any other reason, there will be a recording and this recording will be available for 11 days. And so you will have time to schedule in some time to watch it for yourself. I always encourage people, if you are going to miss the live workshop, because it is so juicy to be there together live, if you are going to miss it, my encouragement is to pencil in on your calendar when you're going to watch the replay. That way you're still getting the full benefit of not watching it whenever you have kiddos running around or whenever you know your partner's there, whenever you're just distracted, that you're still devoting yourself to the work and to yourself just like you would if you were there live. I like to recommend people go to a coffee shop or go out to their favorite place to have you time and to watch the replay there. So in order to gain access to the replay or the live recording, again, you go to awakenhersoul.com and you can enter your information in there. And if you're on that list, you will be given the replay for 11 days. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to my mentor, Holly. Some of you may recognize this name because Holly is the wife and partner of Matthew Kreps, who has been on the podcast teaching on the Enneagram last year. Holly is the founder and co-owner of the Circle Yoga Shala, an internationally accredited yoga therapy center and wisdom school for transformation. She is a certified yoga therapist and ERYT with the National Yoga Alliance. She's trained and developed teachers both at home and abroad for at least 22 years. She has studied with one of my favorite teachers and is a graduate of his program, Father Richard Rohr's Living School, a non-dual contemplative wisdom school. 
Holly's understanding of yoga as an integrative system has led to unique opportunities, such as being a consultant for the Czech Republic's Women Olympics beach volleyball team. Her fascination with these athletes, as well as private clients and yoga teachers in training, focuses on discovering patterns of habitual behavior that interfere with the flow state, the generative ground of creativity, vitality, and intelligent responses. This all began when she unintentionally stepped onto a spiritual journey at 27, having hit a dark bottom, which we are going to talk about today. Holly was a single mother with a two-year-old at the time, and since then, Holly has had the privilege of sitting with spiritual giants who knew how to turn her back to herself. Holly says she leads a full and content life that is a result of fearless, sensitive living and radical acceptance of what is. And wow, in today's episode, are we going to talk about that? We talk about Holly's spiritual awakening, her sobriety journey, what her relationship to surrender is, the journey of what it really means to be with reality and to take full responsibility, which all of you know is both what I love to teach and what I love to need to learn. And we talk about projection. And I think that is a conversation for the times and why reality is much more manageable than the stories we place on top of them. And with everything with Awaken Her Soul amping up right now and the the training next week, this could just not be the more perfect addition to the conversations we're having around here regarding taking responsibility and questioning the stories we're telling ourselves so that we can live our liberation. I am so honored to share this conversation with you. I've been wanting to have Holly on the podcast for a couple of years her work, the way that she lives, the yoga shala, which if you're on social media, you've seen probably me post about the farm that I go to from time to time. And the way that Holly lives her life, it has been such a teacher to me, let alone the conversations that are just so rooted in wisdom. And I've even gotten a chance to be with her with the horses, which we'll talk about a little bit today. So without further ado, let's dive into the conversation so you can finally meet Holly Kreps. Holly, thank you so much for joining me. It's been maybe like three years coming to have you on the show. So I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and also for your patience. (laughs) Yes, whatever it takes. (laughs) So, So obviously I've already introduced you in the intro, but I would love to know if you met someone on the street or maybe not the street where you live because it's a dirt road, but a street, if you're walking a city and met someone on a street uh, and they said, what do you do? How would you answer that? That's a really big question. And it's, if I'd look, it'd be great if it was as simple as like, I'm an attorney, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it's not. So what do I do? I live on um, a working homestead that consists of about 25 acres that my husband and I built out with our own hands um, with the help of community, people that would come in and participate. And we're a internationally um, accredited yoga therapy school. And basically we live off the land, we grow our food, um, we raise animals and we serve people. And how we serve them is through the intelligence in the system of yoga and inquiry and wisdom teachings like um, the Enneagram and Ayurveda. Beautiful. I think some of the people who are listening have been able to hear your husband, Matt, on the show. So just giving context for people who've listened for a while, Matt was on the show talking about the Enneagram. I'm often just mentioning the Enneagram and my experiences with it in interviews because what I've learned from you all has been so valuable. And if anyone's been like 
watching my Instagram stories and I'm ever with horses or where it looks like nature, it's probably at the farm that you live at. Yeah, probably is. So then I heard heard that your listeners, after listening to Matt and your podcast, that many had an existential (laughs) crisis. Yes. (laughs) Like uh, multiple people messaged me and were like, I'm questioning everything and I I need to take a break from your podcast for a minute to like digest (laughs) what I've just heard. So. Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah, I understand. I live with that. <laughs> so whatever I know, everything's fine. They're they're perfectly fine. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think, you know, my yeah, experience with, with the Enneagram and with like teachings from you and Matt, it is somewhat like an existential crisis because there is a, a seeing yourself and seeing yourself outside of ego and within ego at all at the same time. And it's quite uh humbling experience with the Enneagram as opposed to the memeified version on the internet where it's like five things every Enneagram seven does. Yeah. If only it could be that simple. Yeah. Right. Well, I want to get to self-inquiry in a moment, but I first want to hear the story of your awakening experience because I've heard you share bits and pieces from time to time, from your sobriety journey to being a single mother, to discovering yoga, and then also really the miraculous journey of the, the shala itself. Would you mind just taking us on that journey from the past, what, is that 25 years, 30 years? Um, yeah, I've been sober 30 years, um, April 1st of, of this year, April Fool's Day, which I think is rather apropos. <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. Yeah, that wasn't planned. I don't even know if I really paid attention to that till later. I was like, oh, April Fool's. The cosmic joke. It's definitely, there's a lot of those in my life as, as you have witnessed. <laughs> but but um, so yeah, it's been at least, <clears throat> at least 30 years. <clears throat> um, and I'm pretty open, you know, um, I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm, and I'm very respectful of you go, well, it's anonymous. What are you doing, girl? Well, it's fine for me to share my story. And I'm not trying to convert people, <laughs> but just but share experience, strength, and hope that's come from that. Um, and I like being, you know, transparent. Um, so uh, I come from a lineage of, of alcoholics. Um, and, you know, it is a physical disease. During that time, it wasn't quite as known and talked about. And so it still had a great stigma around it. And so where I've raised my children in the AA rooms and um, had them read the big book and share with them the physical disease and how it um, manifests then as an emotional and um, mental and spiritual disease. That's not what was happening back then. You know, we're getting, we're getting more educated or getting more in touch with that. And, Sharing is is part of the solution. So, um, you know, I know that I was a blackout drinker by the age of fourteen, and um, and found myself, you know, and it wasn't like I drank all the time, but when I did drink, the power, the obsession, the physical craving that would take over, um, that then created a mental obsession was more powerful than my will. And so it would always at some point go to the end, which was blackout. And so I wasn't, a, I didn't drink every day. I, my life looked pretty 
like a typical teenager and his cheerleader and all those things. But when I did drink, you know, that the, the obsession um, took over the mental craving, physical craving. So um, by the time I was 27, um, I had already run through all the courses that were available, geographical cures, relationship cures, job cures, you know, I'd done all of it. And still, I kept finding myself back to this place. And there was a moment of grace where it was like, it never occurred to me I was an alcoholic, right? That wasn't in my language. It wasn't something that I knew. And what happens is you surround yourself with people who are like you. So it was normal. And that's what also what I grew up with. So that's the way things were. And but there was this moment of grace that is just like, I might have a drinking problem. And just having that insight opened up, you know, possibilities to me, which is, well, let's see. And I walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous at 27 with a two-year-old son. And Alcoholics Anonymous is a brilliant program on the surface that looks very uh, controlling and very churchy and very all these things like it's just for people who are too inept to do life on their own and need somebody to tell them what to do. And um, on the surface, sure. But deep down, it's something much greater than that. And it's such a incredible wisdom teaching. And I gave myself to the program fully because I was inspired by the people that were in there of all creeds, colors, you know, socioeconomic statuses, like my child's pediatrician was part of that. The the governor's wife at the time was in that room, like, and the schizophrenic, you know, we had this gamut and just seeing humanity and um, experiencing my own humanity by being part of this room, I wanted, and also they were having fun. They were happy <laughs> in their pain and suffering. There was, we were fine. They were finding purpose. And so I stayed and I gave myself fully to that program. And part of the program is doing an inventory and beginning to really do the deep dive work of seeing yourself um, and, you know, coming to know all the things that aren't true that you have believed that have been true the whole time, um, which certainly uh, supported uh, negative or self-destructive behaviors. And that led me back into making peace with my religion of childhood, which I thought was, um, you know, a very oppressive religion, which was Catholicism. And through the 11th step of prayer and meditation, which I gave myself fully to um, on a daily basis, I started becoming acquainted with what I didn't realize at the time were Catholic saints. Those were these readings that were really informing me. And also I was finding these mystical experiences that I was having from uh, what I would say a completely surrendered life um, in meditation. Uh, I was finding commonality and similarities and experiences and um, explanations of things through that. And then it occurred to me, oh my gosh, this is, these were Catholic saints. And so that opened up the door to go back to consider making peace with the Catholic church, not to say, oh, they weren't really wrong. And so now it's okay to be right, but really just to to open up to the fullness of, of all of it, 
what's right and what's wrong. Um, and that's when I met a, a Catholic priest from Portugal called named Father Gomes, who was a yogi and opened up the Eastern traditions to me um, and really supported my journey into the Eastern philosophies and the system of yoga as also a way to find more support for the experiences that were I was having um, through a surrendered life and the power of prayer and meditation. And so that's what really began my, my journey is the program is a journey uh, through um, the scaffolding of what it means to be human. Of course, we're just on steroids as alcoholics. You know, everything's just really magnified because of our drinking. But still, it's the same system and the same difficulties that all humans are dealing with. And so it's a journey through down, not up, a journey down um, through that scaffolding um, with the aim of a spiritual awakening, not a new belief to take on, not a new religion, but a spiritual awakening that's free from all of that and is exactly you know, responsive and open to what that is for you at that time, which is to be embodied in humility and um, a peaceful life. And that doesn't mean, you know, controlling and not having, you know, experiencing things of pleasure and pain. So that's that's where it really began is being a drunk <laughs> and hitting a bottom. It was a pretty clean bottom. I didn't have DUIs and, you know, I didn't have the the wreckage, the way you would normally perceive it. I wasn't drinking every day, all these things. And yet there was so much wreckage internally. And um, I was just so lost. And yeah, and that returned me to myself and to relationship with a higher power and consequently with the world again. And um, then started me on my yoga path. How the... Shala came about is once I started on more of a formal um, journey into yoga, I started working with uh, a, a teacher, Sri Anandamam. She's from India and she happened to be in Antioch, California at the time. And I would go out there and go on retreat with her. And that's where you would receive initiation into her lineage, which was ultimately a, a Kundalini lineage and received Shaktipat and the teachings and um, those types of things. And I returned one day from a long retreat with her in Santa Cruz where, you know, the diet is pretty much a fast, you know, it's not, it's very minimal food. It's like an Ayurvedic diet of kitchery or, you know, a lot of quinoa so that the body's not having to do, it's not overly stimulated and do having to do a lot of digestion so that the body could be free to digest other energies. And um, I went to our local health food store to find out how to make quinoa so I could kind of break my fast easily. And that's when I met my husband, Matthew. And of course, the joke is I still don't know how to make quinoa and never have actually made it. Um, <laughs> you know, he does that for me. And so we've been together 24 years and he had a strong physical yoga practice. And I had more of the devotional aspect of the yoga practice, but we were both studying. Um, we were both in the Eastern philosophies of the Upanishads and, um, you know, the, the Vedic 
um, writings and the Bhagavad Gita. Um, and so we started um, compiling our studies and our practices together. And um, it wasn't long before we married. I was a single mother of uh, almost 10 years at that time um, with a 10-year-old son. And we married and joined our practices and our, our passion. And then next thing you know, we find ourselves owning a studio for 10 years and then um, growing from there into the Shala. Um, you know, we were 45. I was 45. He's younger than me um, when we came and started literally from scratch, you know, just dug in. And it's been 13 years June. Wow. I've seen photos of the beginning. Whenever you say like it was scraps and you built it with your own hands, like you literally built it with your own hands. Yeah, it was, it was a sight. And so, you know, it took us, well, let's just put it this way. When my family saw it, they thought I needed an intervention. You know, I... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've been not the intervention when you were an alcoholic but the intervention yeah. whenever you're starting yeah, a yoga farm. they thought oh my god has she fallen off the the wagon you know what what is <laughs> what is happening because what 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 you know sane person would make this decision to leave a beautiful home and you know Matthew and I were both able to teach and um, do and serve in a way that we feel called to do and provide for our sons because you know Matthew and I had a son together and he was in private school and one was in private one was in parochial and then college when we came here and so you have this beautiful community you're able to do what you love you have a house you have your kids are in the have great education and at 45 you're going to leave all of it um, and start over from nothing from chicken coops and raw land in the middle of nowhere where it's 30% occupancy in the poorest county in the state and start over. Um, Not a very strong business model. And (laughs) and so the property was literally covered in trash. It was, we we hauled off like 16 truckloads of trash in the beginning. The ground, you know, the property was up to our waist and you would just get covered and ticks and chiggers just trying to walk out to start mowing and, um, you know, animal sheds and rickety fences. And I mean, it was a red hot mess. And, but that's what we did. We started taking buildings down, animal sheds, lean twos and recycling the wood and hand belt sanding them and teaching ourselves how to build. And, um, you know, converting a barn for home that was a home for chickens and geese for 25 or 30 years into our practice space and sleeper spaces for people and um, and just learn to do with what we had. You know, we didn't have equipment. We had our bodies. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, you know, our we opened, opened. We had our first open house. We were about almost 24 months into the process. And we had a um, a six course white linen (laughs) dinner uh, for 50 people in our orchard. That sounds really beautiful. We only had a grill 
and a four top burner, you know, uh, gas range that was for an RV. That's what was in the original home. Um, so we have this little range RV gas four burner top and a grill. And we put out hors d'oeuvres and, you know, Matt's a, a trained chef and an Ayurvedic cook. And, you know, somehow we did that. And I think what the farm has taught us and really what my life has taught me is how to work with what you have and how to make the most of it, which invites you to be really resilient and creative. And so as you've seen the property, it's not like it's a five-star resort. Uh, we did it without getting any loans, which meant we worked with what we had. You know, the, there's beautiful stone floors in the barn and everybody thinks that that was the original floor. No, the original floor was 12 tons of manure that we hand shoveled out. <laughs> Those stone floors came from us excavating stone out of the woods and, um, you know, things like that. Gosh, it speaks to me like so much. You've mentioned surrender a couple times. And I think I'm curious, you know, some people would be like, well, why did, why did you just let it be so hard? You could have just, you know, got a huge loan and like, just kind of went in there and paved it and done everything to it. But there seems to be a, a deep desire to like surrender to what is and be with what is. And I'm, I'm wondering in this process, like, how did you know this was correct given that you knew it would be a lot of work. Maybe you didn't know it would be so much work, but given it wasn't going to be easy. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely didn't know what it would be. And had I known, we would never, I'd say, oh, you're crazy. Oh and my God. If, if I had had, you know, the universe had said, here's what it's going to take. And I would have given it the big finger. <laughs> you know, it's Sometimes it's best that we don't know <laughs> the future. You know, Yes, there's a lot of grace and ignorance. And um, I'm glad we didn't know because I, one, I wouldn't have believed that I could do it. Um, knowing what I know, I, I certainly don't want to do that again, although life continues to, to do that in other ways. But I certainly wouldn't want to do it any other way. I, I really wouldn't. I can't imagine leaving this life right now and trying again. How did I know? Well, I kind of call it my divine possession phase, like <laughs> really, because it made no sense. It looked really insane. And um, when we saw the property, it was, here's how I knew I was following. This is going to sound like a wackadoo and it's going to have to be okay, but I'm going to use my language. I was following spirit. And so it's a deep knowing that arises that doesn't come from an intellectual knowing but like a full body knowing about, you know, when we started the studio, when we were offered the studio that was just beginning, and back then there weren't really studios, <laughs> you know, that was kind of a novelty. Um, I had never been in one. We had our own personal practice because when we both came into the system of yoga, there were actually weren't studios. And you, I think, I think yogis were the original couch surfers. <laughs> you know, we, we traveled to each other's houses and, you know, got together in each other's living rooms and those types of things. But I'd never been in a studio. And even when we had the opportunity to do that and to do what we love um, in that way, I already knew that we would be selling it. But that was not what we would do. That wasn't the form it was going to take because I knew that I, you know, I was had this calling to be on land. And 
I didn't really understand what that was. I was a city girl. I was actually my formative years spent on the beach, you know, Morehead City, uh, North Carolina, although my family's from Little Rock here in Arkansas. Um, so I was an outdoors person, but not. <laughs> not like the no. deep woods. <laughs> it's no. not like a farm. <laughs> yeah. no. The beach not is different all. than being an outdoors person. Yes, <laughs> yes it sure is. It, uh, so. But I just had this call. I just had this feeling that we were supposed to get to uh, land to do something creative and sustainable, but I couldn't really articulate what that would be. It was just this, I would just tell Matt, you know, we're supposed to move somewhere. We're supposed to be on some land. And he's just like, we're yogis. We're yoga teachers. We can't get alone. (laughs) You know, I was working at CBS when we met. It's like, you know, that, that was a different life. And um, how is that going to happen? And I'd be like, I don't know, but it's just this knowing and it doesn't fit. It wasn't like this desire, like wanting to go buy a new you know, shirt or something. It's just this, this, this feeling, this deep feeling. And so then I would follow that, that feeling when it would show up, when we were brought to that land, I, I mean, we both were looking at it and it was just a mess, but everything in my body was saying, yes. Now, my mind and my sensibilities <laughs> were saying, oh, hell no. <laughs> but, but, but my body, um, something deeper um, was saying yes. And so really, though, when, I, when we saw the land, I was graced with seeing its potential and not really seeing the fullness of difficult it was I was just really seeing the potential it was like three years later when I was doing a compilation of a scrapbook like before and after that I saw really saw the the beginning and then I saw like I was horrified and I was like how did I not see that before but everybody else saw that that's why they were reacting the way they were and that's why my father had such a hard time and I remember calling my dad and saying you know, I get it. And I know why you were angry because you had to have been terrified for me. It was covering over fear. And I'm actually really sorry I did that to you. Like I didn't mean to do it to you. It wasn't personal, but yet we're not separate from each other. And so there was a personal response to that of his fear for his daughter, even though I'm, you know, 45. And, um, and so I apologized to him for you know, him going through that um, because it was really a mess. But there was this knowing and that knowing must carry you. That knowing doesn't mean, what I've learned is it doesn't mean that things are going to go easy. You know, we were broke within the first four months and like wiped out. And, you know, it would have been nice to go get loans, although I'm glad we couldn't. Like, we knew that as yoga teachers, as doing the life that we did, to get a loan would, would be irresponsible because it wasn't, you know, like a traditional job type thing. And honestly, we were not loanable. And so we had to do it that way, whether we wanted to or not. And so we said yes to it. And we were broke within four months. And, um, you know, it's winter time and no gasoline, no food, no, you know, all the things at 45. I mean, you're supposed to like be doing something else in life. And 
I appreciate you saying this because I think there's a lot of people in this community who feel a devotional relationship to spirit or to life, or they might even call it God, but something that they feel is pulling them and calling them. And a lot of people navigating big transitions that feel really scary and then experience the projections of others and the fears of others. And I appreciate you naming like both sides of it, right? Like I can see why my father would be so worried because it made no sense. And also I felt this calling from spirit that like it would be hard, but everything would be okay. And I think that that, I think it's a really reassuring thing to hear right now. And also a really realistic thing to hear because at least in micro bubbles on the internet, you can have spiritual teachers that say things like just follow your passion and everything will be perfect. And just, you know, if, if, if there's any resistance, you're out of alignment. And if it's, if it's not easy, then you're not doing it right. And I think that whenever I'm talking to my clients, yeah, it says you have to fail and feel like you're doing something wrong. And I work with a lot of people who are like, should it be this hard? Why is life so hard? And I think what something that I really wanted to talk to you about today that I appreciate about how you and Matt live is that you teach how to be in relationship with reality in a really good way. And you've worked with some of the, and like learned from some of the greatest spiritual teachers in the world, both, you know, living and who've passed on. And it's like, I know you've had amazing mystical experiences. Like, I mean, we could talk about all of that, but it seems like all the things you keep coming back to is like being with reality in a good way. And I find that to be really interesting in a time where people are trying to transcend reality and get somewhere else. So I guess I'm curious, like given all of the experiences you've had, why the value in being here? I love everything you said. And there's so many things that can be said. Um, I want to just really digest the question for a moment. So Everybody be patient with me. We have time. Great. <laughs> um, <clears throat> there's so much, um, there's so much that's coming up. So I'm just gonna be spontaneous, right? And one of the things you said was, yeah, we could be talking about the, all the mis- mystical experiences that I've had. And you'd say, well, you know, what has that done for you? What I see, what's happening in the modern culture, which is I'm not going to say it's wrong. I'm going to say everything has its pitfalls, is everybody's chasing those transcendent experiences, you know, mystical experiences, because then what? What does that mean? And so what they do is they find, or what I did, you know, in those things is I would receive this um this lens, this other information of how everything is. And I would also, I was fortunate enough to have the, to receive, and this is not the goal. This actually can be an obstacle on the way because our way is to get attached. And so when we have this experience to say, oh, I found it, this is it. So then we start chasing it. And then we have to keep recreating it over and over and over. And so we're not doing, that's not any different than having it, than chasing the dollar or chasing the partner or chasing the, you know, the thing that makes us feel so good rather than informing us a way of how things are so that we have a greater foundation established to be with what is, which means life is going to be all of it. Good luck trying to control it. 
you know, can we get better at getting what we want? Yes. Should we get better at getting at being okay with not? Yes. Right. Because, because life's going to give it all to us. We cannot control all of the variables and all that is unfolding the, all the possibilities of all the different degrees of suffering. And we can't escape it. And so how do I come back and embody it? How do I let the wisdom or the fullness of seeing all that is through these mystical experiences and touching something really precious help me to be more stable in the world? When people talk about trying to transcend all of this, you know, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I like being a little provocative because sometimes we need a shock, right? And so we could do that now. And all of the listeners could do that now. And wanting, it's not wrong to want something better. But right now, you have five minutes left to live. You have five more minutes. Let me ask you to sit with that. I have five minutes. If we had the grace of actually knowing when our end was coming, many don't. It's like, oh, done. So we're going to act like we have the grace and we know now our end is in five. Let me ask you, because I ask myself this, if I have five more minutes left, what is not absolutely perfect about this moment that needs to be changed? What aura do I need to see? What do I need to transcend? What out-of-body experience is going to be better than this? It's like, if I know that this is it, where does that send you into it fully? At least it does me. What do I want to do? I want to go roll in that grass, man, even with all the chiggers (laughs) and get it on me. Yeah. My first inclination was I would go lay in the dead, crusty grass outside (laughs) and just let the sun, yeah, let the sun be on my skin and just feel that. And just feel it. And mm-hmm. breathe and, and smell and touch and be touched by all of it, which mm-hmm. right now the, the grass, instead of being really cool and soft and nice, <laughs> it's hard and itchy and prickly. Yeah. But yet we would say yes to that because it's embodiment. It's saying yes to, oh my God, this, how could it be any other way? And why would we want something different? Now, that does not need to negate the the negative experiences people are having, the abuses that occur, the injustices, the things that we can improve on. It doesn't need, it's not an either or, it's a both, a both and. I think that's really the key because when I was first trying to understand that, I felt like it was the same thing as, you know, being in very Christian spaces that would say, well, just, we'll just forgive. And I was like, but I'm being abused. You know, it felt very, like I I couldn't reconcile the cognitive dissonance of it. And then realizing I can leave the abuse and be, and be okay with what is like both can exist at the same time. Absolutely. Yes. That's a very important thing you said. Both can exist. Mm -hmm. You'd say, but we've got to, we got to stop the abuses. Yeah, we do. How do we? You know, I've what I've learned over and over, better to um, change myself first 
Because until I know myself, I don't actually know what the world needs. And I can see it, you know, I, and I can see the injustices that I can see, you know, with, we're in a situation where, where we have people that come, you know, to learn. We can do all the, you know, t- couple of decades plus of working with people and sitting with people um, and applying the teachings right, wrong, and better and worse, and, you know, the fullness of it. You can see the potential. You know, I think that's what a good teacher is. It holds up the wisdom mirror that shows you the face that you can't see yet, right? That's usually a projection onto the teacher. Um, <clears throat> but to hold that up and invite, at the same time, respect. You might know what somebody needs, but until they're ready to receive, to impose that is to do harm too. And so, you know, all allowing without neglect so I can love anyway. Allowing people to be actually as they are without neglecting anything, which is what does that might look like? Not negating them by turning them into evil or wicked rather than pitiful, ignorant children of Mm -hmm. God, right? Not negate, not neglecting myself, staying in something hoping it's going to change, trying to make a change rather than just accepting and allowing and then taking action based off of me. Mm. So that instead of a feeling of separation and exile, I can, I can love anyway, but loving anyway, doesn't mean complacency and doormat and codependency. It means all, it means how to love Mm. seeing fully recognizing me in them. It reminds me of something one of my friends has said uh, recently on her on their Instagram. They um, I'm trying to remember the the actual quote, um, and of course I'm going to lose it. It was something along the lines. It was James Olivia to Hillman, who they were a previous guest of the podcast, and they said uh, something on the lines of, "Lately, I am not making any assumptions about what people are doing. I'm just assuming that they're doing exactly as they're doing." Absolutely, and I. I just loved that because it removed my projection on what, what their behavior must mean. If I was to be doing their behavior, I'm projecting some idea of their motivation or what their inner world is saying, as if I could even know that. We can't know that. Yeah. You know, all we, all we know is, is what we do. You know, it's, it's kind of disheartening to rec- to know that no one is actually truly seeing us. This was a devastating realization I had last summer. I remember driving down with Jamie, my ex-partner, to the Shala. And I was like, isn't, I'm like, it's just so sad. It's just so lonely to realize like no one can actually know me. Like I can barely know me right now. You know, I'm removing these layers of self-deception. And I just remember being so devastated really. And I think that that speaks to like the relational aspect of how I'm oriented of like, so all this work that I'm doing to try to connect with people and try to reach towards people, like I can't know what's going on with them and they can't know, really know what's going on with me only yeah. to the extent that we even, that we choose to share. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> Thank God we choose. Yeah. If we do. If we do. What is, what is projection? It's understanding that what's unfinished in me is going to be placed on things outside me. Mm. Why? So maybe they can become finished in me so Mm -hmm. they can become known. 
so they can be seen. The problem is, is that I see it as other. I assign it to their stuff rather than a wisdom mirror reflecting back to me my stuff so that I can tend to it. Mm. Can you, can you share an example of that? Because I think like I'm following, but I want to kind of break it down a little bit more of like, what does projection look like when it's happening? I'd like to kind of go, I love serving my own self up because that's, you know, maybe sometimes the the usefulness of being the fool <laughs> for others. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So hypothetically. <laughs> hypothetically. <laughs> Let me tell you about this woman. <laughs> okay. So I wake up in the morning. I didn't sleep, you know, menopause stage where my body, my life really isn't my own. It's just more humbling as far as who's actually sleeping, you know, really restless, all the stuff. And so, you know, you, you wake up every day, you assume that you're you. <laughs> well, it's more like which you is waking up, <laughs> you know, talking about the Christian tradition. I think Jesus gave us the, the wisdom teaching of legion. You know, he cast out legion. What is that? Me, right? How many me's are in there? So, you know, one of them wakes up that morning and I think, because I'm not sensing myself, I think I'm great. I'm fine. And I get up at, you know, the system itself has not been tended to and it's, and it's running things. And I walk into the kitchen and um, my hypothetical husband has been a, has been awake for hours listening to his podcast and doing all of that stuff. And he's ready to engage in conversation. And I'm a very quiet person. Oh yeah, no, she's a very quiet person. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, I really, I enjoy my, my space. I have to have time to kind of digest and orient to things and I'm going to make myself my morning um, fix. And a question comes to me and this system receives it as, oh God, there's that tone again. There's a tone. Not sensing, I woke up with the tone. <laughs> right? And so my insides, my unchecked, unprocessed, unfelt insides are now being projected onto him as that tone. Well, he must be rigid today. He must not be happy today. He must be impatient today. I am really rigid right now. I am not patient. I'm, I am, there's a turnaround. I, but it's so easy to place onto another. And now we have a 24 year history to justify the placement, to know it's true. And what happens when I respond then, then I'm responding from that reaction that unchecked, unconscious, automatic pattern of our past. And now all of a sudden, I've hijacked his world by placing my world out here and being sure it's true. And then what do we do? Then we get caught in this loop of serving up all these justifications. And I swear to God, it's like, now I realize we're past this time, but this is my time. I swear to God, there's a little person in there with a typewriter with a little hat on just serving up scripts like this, like a cartoon character, 
just typing so fast and just serving it up, just serving it up. And I'm like, where does this story come from? It's so well-crafted. It's like somebody's been in there writing this novel, getting ready for this moment, you know, to be played out. And it's like, whoa, shit. And so, so here we are. Well, because I know better and I know how the mind works, I know how the system works, I'm, you know, but that doesn't mean I'm not human. It means that sometimes I don't catch it before it responds. Sometimes I do, right? But in that moment, maybe it took a form and now we're separate. What's happening in that is I'm no longer seeing this person that's my beloved. I'm seeing me as them. And that begins to hijack the system and it steals energy and it takes us out of ourselves to where I don't, I don't know about you, but when those moments are happening, I don't know I'm in the kitchen. Like kitchen is a, is a concept. My body is a concept. I don't hear the birds. I don't hear the dogs. I don't hear the person at the door. Like all I hear and see and feel is mind. And so recognizing projection, regardless of how easy I can justify and create an incredible script that says I am true I know better now. And so I come to myself, I breathe. One of the most important things we can do when we're caught in these fixations, these uh, automatic habit formations, these moments that take us is to come to the body, you know, and breathe, free our breath into our belly, get mind below the level of the neck, into the body itself, into the gut to start accessing the whole system. And then instead of seeing my mind, I open up to seeing my room and consequently my beloved. And when I do that, then it's not lost on me the pain I've caused. I can see it. And when I do that, then all of a sudden I'm starting to access more of reality as it is rather than my reality. Now, instead of hearing from the ears of hearing what is being said, so I can have that little person feed those scripts to me, I'm actually hearing and I hear the suffering. I hear the confusion. And I hear my neurosis and also I hear the birds and now I hear the clock. And, and so I'm starting to open up more to reality. This has actually happened before. And here's a, you know, a big thing. When I start opening up to reality and receiving more of what is, I return to myself and in returning to myself, I have to feel deeply the consequences of what I've done and I can take responsibility right then. There has been a time when that has happened where like my husband knew that I didn't sleep well. I was struggling physically and, um, and he got up early and yes, he was listening to podcasts and all of that, but he was also making my breakfast. But guess what? I didn't smell breakfast. I didn't even see the skillet. I didn't hear the butter popping. All I saw was me. And this gets played out over and over with people in greater or lesser degrees all the time. And it's just really the way it works and we must take responsibility. Yeah. I see so many of my own experiences in the, in what you just shared. And I am curious, and I, I think that I'm on to this correctly from where I sit, but I'm curious because in the past where I hadn't, and I, I guess maybe you could talk about developing a healthy ego where I 
missed that step in development growing up in an abusive home and was had a very permeable ego boundary interpreted ev- the projections of my love me which is like my stuff and then people's projections onto me i assumed were completely true about me because i was like who am i who am i who am i instead of seeing people's projections as oh that belongs to them i was fully adopting those projections and then letting it feed my own projection of where who can love me is that is that also projection or is that a separate thing with the ego boundary not being fully developed I don't know if I can say, you know, either or mm-hmm. I mean, say both. Yes. You know, how to have a healthy ego is to me is how to take responsibility for myself. And it is tricky. And I think these life experiences is what helps us to develop. If over and over, we'll return to ourselves and take responsibility rather than always scapegoating or always make it about other Yes, maybe they're not behaving correctly. And yes, something in me, right, allowed that. And it's not that I, you know, don't have compassion. I, I've got a lot of um, different abuse in, in my history. And so it's not that I condone that or accept that. But until I accept that I can't know what I don't know until I know it, and how do I know it? It comes through these things then all of a sudden I can make meaning from these things. And as tragic as they are, reality is always more manageable than the stories placed on top of them. And that's one of the things that I think for me kept my ego from developing fully is I had so many stories from my formative years of why things happened that literally had nothing to do with me, but yet I suffered the consequences of them. And so being able to go back with compassion, not excuse making, but but also not blame, seeing fully that everybody's doing the best they can with what they have. And there's no mistake in that. And it is wrong at times and it is unjust and it is abuse until I can see these things in me and also have an understanding, you know, it's just really questionable whether we're actually growing up. I've got several it's just so much easier just to say, I would never do that. I remember, um, you know, in the, we used to have newspapers. <laughs> I, I was alive when newspapers were common. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So there's this column on the front page where you'd get all of the crazy stuff, like a, a index. And it was just like reading the highlights. And I remember one day, you know, we can read those and go, God, not me, you know, crazy. I remember reading on this story of this woman who threw her baby, a four-month-old baby, out a third-story window and killed it. And here I was a mother, right? And so what does a natural response? (gasps) Horror and righteousness and, you know, how could a mother do that? And condemnation and shame and just like such distaste. Why? Because we don't want to think that we're that mother. We don't want to think that. Always got to be somebody else. We'd never do that. I feel very confident that my youngest will not ever listen to this. And so (laughs) knowing him slightly, I don't think so. He's not going to stumble upon it. (laughs) (laughs) And so that is something that he, you know, I could, I'd be happy to tell him too. 
Um, so here comes the youngest. And, um, you know, fortunately, I was 34, 30, you know, 35 when when he was born. And man, was he a terror. You know, if he'd come first, there wouldn't have been uh, the firstborn. <laughs> there would only be one child, not two. And, uh, and he's amazing, um, you know, just amazing. But he really exhausted me. And so, you know, I was doing attachment parenting. I left CBS and we're living on his, my husband's grandfather's little ransack farm. I had some experience before our farm for a couple of years so I could stay home with him. And this kid just raged. I mean, talk about the cosmic joke. I really thought that there was the, the universe was having a real laugh on the yogis, the two yogis, peaceful, loving, you know, Zen yogis, because this kid was all outraged. And I didn't sleep. He, you know, I just trying to create a safe space and I'm trying to do it all right. I'm making him his food. You know, I'm baking apples all day to be able to make the app, just go buy the damn apple food, applesauce, you know, whatever. Let me tell you, mom, so be simple, but I'm trying to like be the person. And I was so tired and he was so rageful and he was, you know, one years old and just, <clears throat> and let me tell you, girl, I had a moment where I could have been that mom. I could have thrown him out that window. Seriously. And I love, like, I, you know, you know how I live for my adult children still. Just, oh, but, you know, they're free to be them. And <clears throat> there was a moment and that happened that it was like, I was so struck by the horror of my own insides when I loved something so dearly. I was immediately recalled that reading of the newspaper where I judged this, this person. And I was just struck by all of it, of how what I had assigned to another was also in me. And I found it and I felt it fully. And I was completely rendered to a deep, humble submission. Um, you know, because thank God, I wasn't worried. What was she dealing with? I wasn't worried about what my electric bill, if I, you know, I had electricity and I had food and I had a husband. And I also had, um, by that time, quite a few years in sobriety of raising myself back up. And, you know, and I had a spiritual life and I had a spiritual, I, I had a network community. What did I have that she didn't? The line between me and her was so thin. And that's the truth of it for all of us. And I think until we begin to do the work of going deep within and stop trying to add to, there is nothing to transcend. There is only something to descend into. And in that going back and deep down and finding these things inside us, only then can we actually rise up from the ashes and true transcendence can happen. That's just not a change of form, all the while thinking we're getting something that we're actually not it's like being in this room and painting it pink, thinking I've gone somewhere because as soon as things don't go your way, then all of a sudden you find yourself back in the same place. So it's a movement of descent. And I think healthy ego development is to fully embody and know the self and know all aspects of us and know that's not personal, but the consequences are very much so. I love that. It's not personal, but the consequences are. Yeah. Yes. 
I have to take responsibility as though it's mine, even though it was formed, right? Mm-hmm. At a time where how could you expect a child to know any different? Yeah. Or whatever. But still, it's mine to now do. Mm-hmm. I've thought a lot about uh, recently, you know, my mom was 27 when I was born and a lot of the things might, that were traumatic to me happened very, very young. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I turned 27 and I was like, wow, 27, there's no way I'm having a kid. I'm not ready to have a kid, you know? And I'm <laughs> like, wow, good job to my parents having a kid right now. That's crazy. And each year, you know, I'm, I'm like, gosh, they really didn't give me what I need. And they, you know, there was abuse and there, there was those things. And then finding out that uh, the intensity of my neurodivergence has quite given me some perspective for my uneducated parents in rural Missouri yeah. who had no resources and the school had almost no resources of, I was a really hard child to raise. Not because I was not a lovely child, sure. but uh, I have my aunt always tells a story of like dropping me off and was like, she has not stopped asking me questions the entire day. She's not stopped talking the entire day. And the inquisitiveness is like beyond what I even know about. And like, wow, my parents were just trying to make ends meet and were exhausted. And yes, again, yes, there was abuse. And yes, there was, you know, lack of resources and capacity, but like, also I was really fucking hard to be around, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so it's given me some compassion where I, before I was just like, fuck them. Yeah. You know, compassion. I think that, you know, that's an important word. It gives me compassion. Yeah. And that doesn't mean justification. Right. But it means putting ourselves in the pot of humanity. Yeah. Where we're able to see ourselves and understand the fullness of it all. Yeah. Right? Not to negate, but then maybe to actually to have an intelligent response. Uh, just in a relationship with all of them in a way, all of my parents in a way that like, it is what it is, right? There's an acceptance of reality and the relationship that can be there. And, you know, I've really had to heal from a lot of the things that took right distance and right space and, and the perspective of that's just grander than just my Mm -hmm. shit. Like, as you were talking about your child and me thinking, I would never do that if I was a parent. And I'm like, if I had my kids at 27, they would have experienced my divorce, my coming out, some really low moments for me if I'd had children. And that would be a part of their story. with them and yet not separate from them. Right. But a child can't separate that. They don't have the prefrontal lobe development and all of the other emotional development. So it's absolutely about them because they're the center of the universe. Yeah. Right. The universe is their body at that time, these children. And so, um, of course, it's them. But the because of the lack of the development, then it's because something that they did right, something they did wrong, something that they're worthy of, something that they're not. And it's all these other things that are not true. Mm-hmm. That's why I say reality is a lot more manageable than the stories onto it. Let's just do with the reality. Right. My parents were inept <laughs> and did the best they could. Right. Why were they in that? Because of their parents. It's a generational, it's passed down. And until I heal myself, I don't know how I can expect my other generations to be healed. Right. Right. And how we're not going to just keep repeating the past because we keep making excuses for our behaviors based off of what came before, yeah. rather than righting the wrong through understanding mm-hmm. and taking responsibility. Yeah. You know, and you, you shared about a child at that age and most ages until honestly being an adult, 
this being the center of the universe. And when you have woundings at that age that are never reconciled, it makes yeah. sense that we would, we would see everyone as the projection of us because that's the, right. that's the developmental stage we're at. That's right. That's where it all stopped. Yeah, exactly. So that's what's hijacking reality in misperceiving. Yeah. Um, yoga is a wonderful thing. I, what I love about the yoga tradition is that all the traditions speak about ignorance in some way. And that ignorance is about projection, which is uh, misperceiving. You know, one of the first things that I got in the AA program is you are mistaken. You, you misperceive. First thing I got in the yoga tradition is you are mistaken. You are misidentified. It's what you, you identify with what you perceive. Um, you know, we're projection machines. That's how it works. And most often it's not a hindrance, but boy, you know, is that true? <laughs> um, it depends on what your aim is. And my aim is wanting to be um, able to love fully. And that doesn't mean negating personal responsibility or care, but how to love fully, which is to free people in what they are and not have to relegate them into something as, you know, a basket of evil or dysfunctional, excuse me, fucked up, you know, I'll rel- put them in all these neat baskets that I don't know how we're going to heal in that way. You know, I don't, yeah. I, just, I don't know how we're going to accomplish what we think we're going after when we um, separate like that mm-hmm. rather than love. It speaks so much to the things that are happening politically, religiously right now, which I know we certainly do not have time to get into, but it, it yeah. sheds, you know, a lens to look at that through. Yeah. I'm noticing our time and we didn't get to talk about the horses yet. And I want to make sure that you get a chance to speak to that because I know it's yeah, really the thing right now. It is a thing. It is a real surprise. You know, I didn't know that horses would be a part of what we do. And certainly because I never thought we could afford them. And one could argue we still can't. But, <laughs> so, um, but they show, you know, Schwartz showed up and started teaching me. And it's been a beautiful, shocking journey of seeing how what we're actually talking about, uh, how the horse is a giant mirror, a huge yoga mat or whatever, uh, a wisdom um, feedback loop for seeing ourselves and seeing how we're not in alignment, misperceiving and out of congruence with what is. And it's not so much that, you know, when we're, if we are enlightened or, you know, we feel good for the day that the horse um, affirms that I think it's when we're not clear about what's happening and we're not embodying that doesn't mean controlling, you know, uh, our emotions as far as making sure I'm only happy when I go out there. It's about being embodied with really what is so that I can open up to the fullness of everything rather than just my mind, like the situation in the kitchen with my husband, then they feel safe. And when they feel safe, then there's this union, this joining up, it's this breathtaking, uh, you know, deep sensory experience because of the power of that feedback loop of what it feels like to be in flow with something and to be free. Uh, It's just magical. And so they're really have taught me a lot about, um, about the self and how to work with the mind and the emotions. And it's just been a another, like I said, lens and layer and level to 
um, all of the great wisdom teachings in this four-legged creature. And so now I've got more horses that are here. I'm part of rescuing horses, which I also didn't know what I would be doing um, because there's a real plight right now for our horses, our, our brothers and sisters that are incredibly intelligent, sentient beings um, that people don't know about. And so I'm involved in rescuing um, and growing those efforts to not just better serve the horses, but also have a new way in which to better serve people as we go towards the aim, hopefully, of healing ourselves. Because the more I fall in love with um, myself and I heal myself, the, the freer the world is and the fewer problems I actually now witness. And then when one does arise, I actually know how to take action from a deeper intelligence than just trying to control not getting what I used to get in hopes of getting only what I want. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. So can you share with us how you'll be working with the horses and the opportunities around working with the horses for people who are like, I am curious about the school. I want to come learn from you. Can you share a little bit more? Yeah, thank you. Well, the school itself. So we have a 200 hour, 500 hour and a thousand hour yoga therapy uh, program. And um, I'm starting to integrate the horses more into that program because with your learning about yoga, you will be learning about the mind. You're not just making shapes with the body. And so it is about learning how, what gets in the way, what is this complex system and how do we operate it and open it up and know how to go. Um, and so meditation, presence, projection, misperception, identification, there's no better way to get things out of concept and into reality than with a 1500 pound feedback loop that's staring at you. That's waiting for you to wake up um, in that moment. <laughs> and then we'll mirror to you when you've embodied. And so that presence and all of these wonderful spiritual, uh, you know, signposts actually are felt not taken on and conceptually believed and understood, but a deep, deep knowing with them. So they, they're becoming more integrated into um, our other trainings and teachings. I offer retreats where people can come um, to do deep personal inquiry and use, uh, utilize those, you know, the horses as a means in which to be able to further integrate and digest what's being learned through self-inquiry. Um, and then personally, I'm moving away from myself being the lead facilitator. And you've seen me do this for a number of years now. And now it seems to be really clear that the universe is asking something new of me. And I'm like, really, I just now feel comfortable in what, you've <laughs> what I've been doing. I feel like I'm just like ready to, to act like I'm on a beach and kind of rest and coast. But um, there's another calling, you know, coming up and that's to uh, begin to work more formally with people outside of the yoga training setting, like the teacher therapist setting um, into uh, the piece that I'm most interested in about yoga, which is how to work with the multi-complex system. And so working with people one-on-one -on -one and, and also in group containers um, taking them through a very gradual and easy journey through much of what we've been talking about. How does the mind work? 
Um, whether our particular being able to spot and identify our particular groove, our habit habit patterns, what's stealing the energy, how to embody that rather than negate it and try to add something new on top of it and support each other and taking deep dives into um, this descent into, um, you know, what it is we're actually looking for. And then coming out of that um, with a celebration with the horses uh, as a wonderful mirror of inspiration and what, what, you know, transformation, what you've accomplished. So we're still going to be offering all of our trainings. That's very much what we do. That is one way that we've been called to serve. And now I'm being asked to, to take all of my years and now offer it in another way for people who don't want to become teachers, but certainly can benefit from the wisdom of um, the recovery tradition, the Enneagram tradition, the um, yoga tradition, and um, the science, you know, and science and the horses. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. It is so exciting to me because I so respect everything that you and Matt and everyone there does. And, you know, was not interested in becoming a yoga teacher or yoga therapist. was like, I'm like, I have a full thing, but I'm like so interested in, in the wisdom and in really seeing myself and seeing the world clearly. And so I think it's just such a valuable resource and also any opportunity to come to the farm and be with the horses and be on the land is just an amazing opportunity. Yeah, so, I agree with that. Thank you. It definitely is healing land. That's what yeah. we are. Yeah, um, I agree. Yeah. I, I miss it. I'm so happy to be on it this weekend, even though I don't get to see you when I'm there. I'm really happy. It'll yeah. be aired. This will be aired by the, you know, I'll have gone by the time this aired, but do you have time for some rapid fire? I know we've yeah, gone a little please. bit over. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I've cut back my rapid fire because I realize that they're a podcast episode in and of themselves. People are always like, oh, wow, this is a whole podcast episode. Yeah. Just your rapid I'll fire. I'll give one, one word answer. Okay, good. We'll be, <laughs> we'll be quick. Okay. What are you most enjoying learning right now? Um, the horses and presence. Awesome. Continuing to unfold the wisdom there and mm-hmm. their common uh, language, what that language is mm-hmm. and how that language is our unspoken language of our spirit. Mm. That's what I'm learning and deep diving into. That's beautiful. How do you know when you know? Oh gosh, you just know. Because mm-hmm. it's a full body, yes. Mm-hmm. Is that if I try to do anything else, it would keep pulling me back. It would be yeah. unfinished, mm-hmm. right? Untended to, like a child going, hey, <laughs> <laughs> hey. Yeah. Right. So it's a, cause it's a full embodiment. Beautiful. What's your go-to coffee shop order? A Breve. What is a that? The Breve latte. So it's an espresso with half and half. Mm. Yeah. That sounds really good. I've been off coffee for like maybe four months now. And that sounds really nice. I was off coffee for 14 years. Wow. What changed? Yeah. I don't know. Just wanted to just wanted a cup of coffee and it was like, Oh yeah, it's good. I've been <laughs> doing tea coffee too. So I'm, I'm not off caffeine, but like when fall comes, I'm going to be doing some decaf because I love coffee with half and half. Yeah. It so, is okay. What does grace mean to you? Grace comes in by moments of clarity. Mm. Grace is freedom. 
grace is revelatory. You know, grace is, is free. Moments of being touched by grace is when I'm open to receive, free from my preference of how I must have things. These moments that just touch you deeply mm. where it's able to write the system, be it in the mind, in the body, in the emotions, in the spirit, in order to open to the potential of a new action, a new arising mm. that allows for uh, the full um, suchness of life. Mm. I love that. The moment when you can make a new choice, that feels really relevant. Yeah. The final question is, what do you want? Um, what I have is what I want. Mm. And in that having the ability to adapt when what I have changes, mm. because life will change it. Yeah. So I, I want what I have and I want the ability to respond and to stay open. And I guess ultimately I just want love. Mm -hmm. right not the all yeah yes all the many forms of love but just to be able to um touch which we all have um love itself Mm. over and over just how to be loving beautiful very simple yeah you'd think it would be yeah it's not (laughs) it's not So maybe what I want is to never lose the desire to turn to love itself, Mm. especially in times of great difficulty. Mm -hmm. I pray that I never lose that desire. That's what I want. So beautiful. Goodness. Thank you so much for doing this. Even though we waited three years, it was so (laughs) worth the wait. And uh, so people can follow you at Circle Yoga Shala on Instagram. They can also follow you at Unbridled Transformation, the website. All of that will be linked in the show notes. Is there anywhere specifically you want people to reach out to you or to find you? I would actually love it if they would find me on Unbridled Transformation on Instagram. That's something I'm actually just getting started to kind of step, not step out of, but yes, I guess clearly delineate the difference between working with me through teacher training and then working with me um, in a different setting and um, join my newsletter. I tell horse, I tell stories of the horses each week and how that, what those horses are, how they are, what it has to offer you, mm-hmm. you know, how you can turn that into something you can actually use and try on for that week for self-discovery and reflection and something new. Mm. So find me on Unbridled Transformation and follow the, the story of the horses. And that's where you can also you know, follow the story of the Shala. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. As always, it's great to see you. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to Everything Belongs. I am so grateful knowing the amount of input and content there is available that you take the time to listen to this show and so value your attention and the fact that you choose to keep tuning in. If you're curious about today's guest, you can go to madisonmorgan.com backslash podcast to get all of the show notes and all the links to their website. 
If you are receiving heaps of value from this podcast and want to continue to support the team that makes it possible or just simply say thank you, consider contributing to our gratitude offering. It is a small way to say thank you and give back to the podcast by creating reciprocity. We have four different ways for you to contribute from $7 a month to $37 a month, or even a one-time thank you contribution. You can choose your level of support from $7 monthly, $17 monthly, $37 monthly, or a one-time contribution. And for those who choose to give on a monthly basis, what you'll get in return is an eight-minute hypnotic induction, which is basically a fancy meditation to support you in anchoring in gratitude as your baseline state. It uses nervous system regulating breath, bilateral stimulation that helps you reprogram old stories, binaural beats for calming your mind, gentle hypnotic suggestions, and absolutely zero cheesy count your blessings type lists. Plus, whenever you choose to support on a monthly basis, you get access to my close friends on Instagram. This bonus gift is my way of saying thank you so much for supporting the podcast, where you will join my Instagram close friends and will basically be able to hear my personal rants, photos, daily happenings, and the hilarious memes that I share with my closest friends. This content is created just for fun. It's not marketing material. It's nothing that I create specifically for my business. It is just for fun, and I would love to have you in that inner circle. Basically, I would love to share my weird with you as a way to say thank you for supporting the podcast. Plus, of course, you will receive insider's access to all the discounts I offer, first dibs on new opportunities to work together, and that generous feeling of abundance and reciprocity for contributing to something that you get a lot from. If you're curious about joining the gratitude offering, you can go to madisonmorrigan.com backslash gratitude dash offering. And if you're looking for a free way to say thank you and to contribute your energy to the show, please leave a five-star review. That is the simplest and easiest way to send your generosity and to send your thanks and it really helps boost our ratings and itunes and reach more people who might enjoy it in the meantime i would love for you to join me on instagram dm me and let me know your favorite part of this episode and until next time remember that curiosity can be a portal to a life where everything belongs <laughs>